0: what up this is dregs one and welcome to another episode of the history of the bay podcast sponsored by the good folks of amoeba music san francisco today we got Dio on the boards behind the camera we got king set and d'angelo and shout out to the producers skino and whitney chanel and today we have a very special guest i don't introduce do you go by tracy h tracy helton or just tracy
1: Ah, uh, Tracy H four one five.
0: I like that. Tracy H four one five is in the building. Thank you very much. Thanks for, for having me. This through. is
1: probably the most people I've been around without a mask on in three years. So, right on. I'm A little nervous. Right
0: <laughs> on. It's all good. Everybody's here is uh, safe and clean, I believe. <laughs> uh, but today is gonna. It's, it's a different kind of guest, and we usually have rappers and graffiti writers on. And uh, today, I wanted to bring you on because. I think you have a really interesting story, a really piece of interesting piece of San Francisco history that uh, people might not be too familiar with. Um, I gotta say, you're one of my heroes. Oh. I'm really inspired by your story. Um, for those who don't know, <clears throat> Tracy appeared in the film Black Tar in the dark, the dark, dark end of the, the street. street which was on HBO's America Undercover? It was. Back in the day, and uh, my pop sat me down and like forced me to watch that <laughs> back in the day. <laughs> and uh, it worked. <laughs> it made me stay away from drugs, but it's a it's a pretty intense documentary. Um and it's inspiring to see how far you've come since then. So, uh thank you for coming on here to share your story.
1: Thank you. So, I mean, the movie was made from December uh 1995 to December 1997. So, like, this time of year, I really get to thinking about how far I've come in my life. And when that movie came out, it was one of the most popular movies they had on HBO that year. So, like, I was like a deer in the headlights because I'm still living in the Tenderloin. Right. And, like, people were like, hey, I'll get you high. You know, everywhere I went, people yeah. were, like, knew who I was, but I didn't know who any of the—I didn't know who they were. And, like, still to this day— at least once or twice a month, I get people contact me. Um, they really want to know because that movie, especially younger people, they watch it on YouTube. I've had a lot of people tell me like, I'm trying to get off drugs or I was on drugs and I watched that movie and it, and it really helped me. And then I, I looked looked you up on the internet. And so when I adapted the name Tracy H415, it was really, um, and used my real name, because you know a lot of people on the internet don't use their real name, but I wanted people to see like, this is the person I was and this is the person I am, and you can follow me this entire time, and you can look and I'm the same person the entire time. I, you know, it's like, I've been to jail, I did this, I did that, and it's, and it's real. It's like, because so many people that you follow on the internet, they're fake as fuck, their story's fake, they make up shit, but like all my stuff is real. But the important part is that I was able to transform my life, and if I can do it and people can see how how messed up my situation was, then they can do it too. And that's kind of like why I decided to take myself out of, you know, sort of like a privacy mode and really open my life up to other people. And that's really where I, I know a lot of people who follow your podcast actually, cause a lot of people contact me on the internet when they have different things going on with them, whether it's drugs or mental health stuff or whatever, because I'm like a sort of like a surrogate mother to some people now that I'm old. Uh, but you know, back then, um, I mean, my life was, I was out of control. For, I mean, for real. Like, I did not care one bit if I lived or died, what I was doing. Like, I, when I look around these streets, especially around here, I think about, like, you know, s- sleeping under Cesar Chavez, overpass, and stuff like that. And, like, uh, I remember one night in particular, this guy's like, I'm going recycling. Do you want to come with me? And I was like, okay, because, you know, we're going to get high or whatever. And uh, recycling is a job. Like, that's a whole, that's a whole, that's a whole lot of work.
0: Yeah, uh, it's a hustle.
1: To try to get high. And then we're sleeping under the bridge and I got the dirtiest I've ever been. And then just to make, you know, a few dollars at the end of the night, I was like, I'm not doing this. I'm going to commit crimes. Right. Like, this is, this is not, this is not what I'm doing. Like, I just, I just couldn't do it. And like, that was, I mean, living in those like four square blocks of the Tenderloin, that was just kind of like my life.
0: Yeah. Uh, And that's one reason that, you know, I've been following you for a while um, and that's another reason I wanted you on this show because the stuff that you're talking about and the stuff that you experience is like definitely part of, for me at least, growing up in San Francisco in this environment where all this stuff is going on. Um, it had a big impact on me. Some of the stuff I've seen, some of the stuff I've been through, my friends have been through. Um and yeah, it's just uh, it's it's a part that uh, of San Francisco that they kind of sweep under the rug. And um, I think you being public and sharing your story is very powerful. And it doesn't surprise me that people are always reaching out to you and, and finding inspiration in your story.
1: I was so and thank you. I mean, in in preparation for this, I really have been thinking a lot about what it was like to be strung out on drugs um, in the Tenderloin or just in San Francisco in the 90s. And yeah. a lot of people don't remember that there was no antiretrovirals then. So you would see people with spots for capeous sarcoma, with people with HIV walking around, and there was no there was no treatment for them. So if your, if your friend or your loved one um, contracted HIV, they would basically tell them, uh, you have two years, get your affairs in order and, and go home and die. And I knew a lot of young people who came out from the suburbs, who ran away because their parents were abusing them or whatever. And they came to the city and they did not comprehend what was going on here. And like, they would use a dirty syringe or they would, um, you know, sleep with the wrong person and they would contract HIV and they would, and they would die. And the ambassador hotel, which is right there. Mm-hmm. And the tender line is re the city took it over, but that used to be an AIDS hospice where mm. people, and I used to live there. Like I lived in one of the floors and they had a hospice there. And like, you would walk by and people would be in their hospital beds. And like one time I remember walking by, somebody's in a diaper smoking crack in their hospital bed. And like, that is what San Francisco was like back then. Yeah. And and like all of Market Street was just run down because the earthquake had happened. So people were living in all kinds of abandoned buildings because they would be red tagged and people couldn't live in them. They said, but then people would break the lock and they'd go live in them. So like people were running around doing graffiti and doing whatever. And there was like, Market Street had three strip clubs and they had that yeah. they had gambling shacks. And um, remember, they had that uh, bar, the Peter Pan at the end of there where gay. I, saw, I remember one of the first nights I came to San Francisco, I saw just the whole bar empty out with all these gay dudes with pool cues, you know, beating the shit out of people and fighting and stuff like that. And like when people talk about what San Francisco is like now, they forget. Like, yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. Exactly. There's this whole narrative right now that. The TL is a war zone and <clears throat> it's crime is out of control. But like you're saying, that era in the 90s, it was just nonstop gnarly shit all the time. <laughs> and those are like some of my earliest memories. And that's why I like, you know, even though um, that documentary is so uh, graphic, um, I still watch it every couple of years just because it brings me back to that feeling of when I was a kid walking around through that stuff downtown with my mom or whatever, or even my neighborhood. Uh, and there's a there's kind of a nostalgia that that whole like era of, of Market Street and the Tenderloin has kind of changed.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. even when you think about San Francisco used to have, what, seven or eight open drug markets where you could go buy crack, like Lower Haid had one. You could go to Valencia Gardens. You could go to Sixteenth Mission. You could go out to the Bayview. You could go uh, out there by um, Caesar. Ch- actually, close to here by Caesar Chavez. The housing that they had there, what like thirtieth and Caesar Chavez. Then you could go Twenty uh, Fourth Mission. You could buy crack. You could buy heroin. And then you could buy heroin and buy crack and <coughs> stuff downtown. And people are like, "Oh, but you know, this, the city's so messed up. It's because it's all concentrated in a small area. Because all right. well, they used to have the host role there on Hay Street. Remember the, um, by where they had the chicken place. Um, oh, was it um, oh, it was oh, what was his name? The, the And then he moved up to the Fillmore. He had the chicken place. Pals, wasn't pals?
0: I don't know. That might have been before my time. Oh, but
1: they had um, they had uh. A little host roll there, where they had a little piece of highway that hadn't been taken down. Oh,
0: like the Hayes Valley. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Death Valley back in the day, and now Hayes Valley is like gentrification brunch land. Yes. Um. Well, I want I want to get into your story from the beginning. <laughs> um. <laughs> where Where did you actually grow up, and what was your childhood like?
1: So I'm from a place called Westchester, Ohio, which is. I mean, it was like cow country. well, actually it was more sheep where I grew up. And um, my mom was from New York City. so she she was Puerto Rican, Italian, Irish. and then um, my grandmother's actually from Puerto Rico. and uh, my dad met my mom when they were in the na- when he was in the Navy on shore leave. And so they ended up having sort of a lifelong, tumultuous relationship where he was always drinking and she was always trying to fix him. And so when I was a kid, I mean, I didn't talk about this in my book, and I I, I didn't really talk about it in my movie, but, like, I had exposed to drugs when I was very, very young. And I didn't want to air my siblings out, you know what I mean, like, in a public forum. But, like, my sister, she used to use drugs when I was little. And so between my sister and then my dad and just, like, inappropriate shit that I experienced as a kid and stuff like that, and no one to talk to, and no one, to, you know, it's like— in the 70s, it's like, you don't talk about what's going on in this house. It's, yeah. it's not to the school, not to anybody. And it's not like anybody would have done anything anyway, because that's like your family stuff. And so um, my sister ran away from home when she was 16, and she never came back. And so things got better for a little while. There was a lot of changes in the house for a little while, but then it just got kind of worse. So I was diagnosed with having depression by the school when I was like 12. And I started doing all these things, getting in trouble. Um you know, for a little while, but it was mostly just me hating myself, but not having like me having all these big emotions, but nowhere nowhere to talk about it. You know, reading and, um, you know, fantasizing about things. And then by the time I got to be a teenager, I wanted to be in the city. I mean, I just wanted to be away, be in the city, be where all the action is, get into like punk rock music, but any kind of music, just like being out. And, um, you know, drugs came right after that as they do. I just think I wanted to not be inside myself. I wanted to like not, I think drugs in some ways probably saved my life, get me from killing myself. But, you know, then they take everything away from you for a certain, you know, in a certain way. And, uh, you know, in particular, just like my choice and like people that I would go around and stuff like that. And that's actually how I got interested in graffiti because one of my best friends, he got into graffiti, but he got into like graffiti as in, I want to go spray paint police cars. Yeah,
0: straight vandalism. (laughs) Yeah, it's
1: vandalism. I wouldn't even say graffiti, like vandalism. Like he he ended up killing his stepfather when he was 14. Like he had a lot going on with him. And so he got straight into vandalism. And I just remember that feeling. It was almost like drugs, like the way that you feel when you've done something that you're not supposed to be doing or you're getting into somewhere like, oh, let's go in this building we're not supposed to go into. Like, let's do these things we're not supposed to do. And, uh, I mean, I wish I had, like, a good reason to say that I got into drugs. Like, there is no real reason. I mean, the reason is that drugs feel good when you first start doing them.
0: Yeah. And what what brought you to San Francisco? Did um, you come straight from Ohio to, to SF?
1: So, it's in my book that I wrote. Um, I mean, the, the true story is that I was out drinking with a friend of mine. This guy that I knew, and so he had just gotten out of prison because he used to burn down buildings for the mafia, but then he burnt down a building with the people in it, and so they put him in prison. So he was in—he had some kind of big gambling debt or something like that. Like, these are the people—you know, randomly, I would just hang out with different people you meet at the bar and stuff like that, but, like, my friend introduced me to him, and so he— We were drinking in the bar, and he owed this money to a loan shark. He owed $2,240 to this loan shark. And he said, wow, you know, we were drinking Cisco. We were just getting drunk. And I had, like, this apartment where everybody would hang out.
0: This is in Ohio? This is in Ohio.
1: So he went to sleep, and my friend clipped him. But I didn't know that my friend had clipped him, um, you know, because I was drunk, too. Like, my friend got in his sock and clipped him. And when he woke up, he was like, bitch, where's my motherfucking money? Where's my money? And he held me hostage with a pair of scissors, and he said, "I'm not even going to let you live. I'm going to put your eyes out and make you live like that." Just, he said, I, "I, I just, I have to get this money." And so, by the end of the day, I already had a plan to get the fuck out of San Francisco. I mean, to get to go to San Francisco, at the fuck out of San. That's just
0: like the farthest west coast. I knew
1: somebody that lived there, and I was like, "Well, I'm just going to leave for a week, and while he figures this out, that I didn't take his money." Because, like, now I'm in a different level. You know, when you start hanging out with people. You start hanging out with shady people, and at first you're like, Well, I'm not really afraid, but then you start you meet one person, you're like, I'm kind of afraid now. Like yeah. this is this is another level.
0: Yeah, you went a little too far in over your head there. Yes.
1: Yeah, so you're like, we're just drinking. You know yeah. what I mean? We're just hanging out, we're drinking. Now we're now people are threatening my life. Yeah. Um, I don't know what's gonna happen. Um, and I took him seriously, like he was serious. Right. You know, he was angry, he was drunk. And I was like, well, I just need to get away for a little while. And I had already been doing heroin a little bit, but I did not, you know, the scope of what was going on here versus Cincinnati is like, I mean, now Cincinnati, they throw packets in your car. They give you samples, try to get you hooked. So you'll go back to the same dealer. It's totally different. But back then you could get heroin. It was like I had my friend had to drive to Dayton who would drive to New York who would come back to get the heroin. So it was like, even if I wanted to do it, I couldn't do it that much. So I came out to San Francisco on the Greyhound bus. It was April 6th of 1992. I went to stay with my friend. He was going to um, USF with him the first night. I went up to Golden Gate Park and they had um, those like, was it SF dogs that used to hang out there? Mm. The people used to sit in the front of the park and sell weed and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. So one of the guys was like, I can't help you get some heroin. And I got some heroin and uh, I went to this um, apartment on Polk street and met these people. And, uh, I got high as fuck. And then I ended up throwing up all over the Muni, you know, just sloshing back and forth, uh, throwing up all over the Muni. And I went back to my friend's place with a couple. He's like, you got to go, you know, you can't be here like this. Like you got to, you can't, you got to go. Like you have to get out of here. And, uh, and I was just out in San Francisco and within like a week or two, I was like, I'm struggling on drugs, I'm I'm getting sick. Like I had some, I brought some money. I had my college tuition rerouted to me. And you know, now I'm out here. And then uh, I got in some legal problems related to the people that I was hanging out with back there. Um, you know, cause I'm trying to like, I don't know. I don't even know what I was trying to do, but um, I got on some legal problems. And then I said, well, I guess I'll just make myself comfortable here. But, I mean, I just I just did not understand what I was getting. I guess I was naive, but also I just like getting high way too much.
0: Yeah. Uh, how old were you at the time?
1: Uh, I got here when I was 21.
0: Mm. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of stories about that, like where people just kind of show up in San Francisco and then they get turned out real quick. Um, it was kind of like a a mecca for that, for people coming from all over. And then the next thing you know, like you mentioned Hate Street, too. That's like that was like one of those dan- that's dangerous kind of destinations for you to arrive in. And then all of a sudden you're exposed to the underworld of the city pretty quickly.
1: I mean, San Francisco has a mixture. People come here for drugs and sex. You have like prison culture with gay culture, with, you know, all these different cultures that are on top of each other in a small place that all press against each other i mean when i got here everyone was trying to recruit me for into prostitution there was a little pickpocket group that used to hang out where the cable car turns around Mm -hmm. i don't know if you know who i'm talking about there's like a little group of teenagers that used to pickpocket so it's like you had to figure out where you were going to get in where your hustle was going to be and you would go to ga they would give you a room for a week um that you could stay in and, like, they would give you a room and, like, 10 ten other motherfuckers would have the same key because they would only have, like, 13 keys that they would switch out the locks for. So people would just keep trying to key in the different doors until they could get in your room. So I just ended up sleeping outside and, like, it was just a totally different world, though. I feel like people were, um, I mean, it was just, like, it started eating you up from, yeah. from day one.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty fucking heavy. I mean, did you even have, like, the opportunity to, like, soak in the city like, oh, I like it here. Oh, San Francisco. Okay, this is cool. Or was it just straight up like, boom, into into the dope?
1: Oh, I've never seen half the stuff in San Francisco to this day. <laughs> my husband and I were cr- crossing over the bridge the other day. I was like, have you ever been to Alcatraz? He's like, I've never been there. <laughs> He's from here. He's like, I've never been to Alcatraz. I like, I've never been there. I've never been to a lot of these places. Like people bring stuff up that happened in San Francisco. I'm like, yeah, I don't know. I was on drugs. I don't, I don't remember.
0: And I mean, you you talk about coming from like Ohio, Cincinnati, how how uh, the street culture of San Francisco is like very fast paced, uh, very high stakes. How how long did it take you to kind of acclimate to like learning how to navigate all that?
1: Well, I think particularly a lot of like older black trans women sat me down and they were like, girl, this is the way it is Mm -hmm. like you have to be careful of this because people are going to try to pimp you. Like you have to be careful of this because people are going to try to do this. Like you have to, you're young in the city and you don't have any resources and you don't have any people like this, this is what's going to happen. And they were particularly were like, you have to be careful who you get high with. Like people will try to take advantage of you and, and turn you out and all this other kind of stuff. And I I listened to that and I took in their different lessons that they would tell me and they would teach me different things. And I, And I took in a lot of that kind of stuff. And I never forgot any of that.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's another piece of it is like, even though it's this grimy underworld, there is this sense of community there.
1: Oh, absolutely. I'm still friends with some of the people. I wasn't like, especially towards the end. I only wanted to be by myself just because I was so locked in to like, I just want to quit. I don't know how to quit. I'm going in and out of these jails. I'm in these relationships you know, these terrible relationships. Like, I was always the accessory to the felony, if that makes any yeah. sense. Like, I always had some boyfriend who was, like, in and out of prison. I always say, like, uh, you know, I make all those, like, TikToks where I make fun about, like, the dude with the face tattoos and the neck tattoos as soon as you get out of prison. I used to say, if you had a clone called Off the Yard that I could take it and spray it on a normal man <laughs> so I'd be attracted to him, you know, because, like, that's who I used to be attracted to. But But I kind of, you know, it's like I kind of, was like that too, to a certain extent. Like I, I liked all those kind of things, and now I look at myself. I'm like, I don't even know what happened.
0: Yeah, it's, it sounds like a like a, a pretty big blur to get sucked into. Um, so you were there basically uh, for three years, and then they started shooting the documentary. Is that is that right?
1: So. Yes, so I was at the the Youth Needle Exchange they used to have on Hemlock Alley. And they were recruiting for the movie, but they thought that I was kind of too old for it or whatever. But I really wanted to be in it because I wanted people to see what my life was like because I thought I was going to die. And I wanted people to know that, like, heroin and using drugs and all that shit wasn't glamorous because in my mind, I had set that up to a certain extent of, like, being glamorous or whatever, like, I don't know what I thought, but I wanted people to know what it was really like. So I was like, I'm willing to open my whole, my whole thing up so you can see what it's like to realize that it's, it's not that. Like when you first start getting high on any kind of drug, you don't realize what the impact of it can have on you, especially when you're young, because you're not thinking straight, you know what I mean? And your, your whole thing is not put together yet. And so, I said, well, I'll just let you know. And they were, they filmed, they first, they were only filming for a year because it was supposed to be on um, A&E, but A&E said, oh, this is too, this is too rough. We don't want this on our network. So HBO had told them, um, we'll we'll put it on, but you have to do another year. So, I mean, I didn't get paid or anything. It was something I wanted to do for a certain extent. Um, And then I didn't expect that I would be sober before it came out for sure.
0: Yeah, I mean, just to like, Touch on that, what you you said about, um, like, how your life was going. Because heroin is, like, one of those—it's not like a party drug. It's not like you're, you know, like cocaine. You're, like, out partying, doing coke every night. Like, at the time you're doing it, like, did you realize, like, like, fuck, this is all bad, but this is, like, a circle that I can't really get out of, or—
1: so the first time I tried to get off heroin was like maybe six months after I came here, but then I switched to meth. So I did heroin and meth The at the very end of my drug use, I was doing heroin, meth and syringe and it's heroin, meth and cocaine in the same syringe. And I was like shooting up in the bottoms of my feet in between my toes. I didn't have any veins left. I was living at the Kenny hotel. Um, I was selling drugs for the, like the low level Mexican runners, Um, They would come up from, I think, Jalisco. They always used to send minors up here because at the time, if you got, if minors got arrested, they would send them home instead of send them to the immigration prison. So, like, I would, you know, do transactions, which I've been convicted for. So I'm not telling on myself. Um, And so they, you know, they would have me do the packages or whatever. So I had all the drugs I wanted, but I was just dying. I mean, I, physically, I was dying. I was dying inside. I was living, barricading myself in hotel rooms with money, had no friends. The guy that I was dating was like, you are too much. I cannot deal with you anymore. And I was just like, I can't live like this. And I said, when when they finally arrest me, because I'm on probation and some confidential informant had told on me, I was like, when they finally arrest me, I'm going to ask them to send me treatment because I need, to, I need to stop. But the problem was when they finally arrested me, they didn't want to send me to, pr- they wanted to, send me to prison. Um, so they ended up uh, sending me to, to treatment in lieu of a prison sentence.
0: Mm. That, was, that was the first time you tried to get clean? or That was, that was the only
1: time I've tried oh, to get clean. Oh, it was clean. the only
0: time. And, but before then, you had been to like 850 a few times and stuff, right?
1: I've been arrested 11 times and spent nine and a half months of my life in jail.
0: Um, and part of that was during the filming of yeah. the documentary. Was that like your longest stay Uh,
1: That was six months. Yeah, the the jail, there was a lot of drugs in the jail. I mean, a lot of people who've never been to jail, they're like, oh, jail's like rehabilitation. Jail's not like rehabilitation. It's First of all, it's absolutely humiliating to go to jail. And one of the things you see, if you open your eyes at all, is the way that they disparately treat black and brown folks in the criminal justice system— and you're in there and then poor people too, but that's a big piece of it is you're just like, this is where all of the social problems that nobody's ever dealt with end up, people end up in the jail and they just warehouse you away from the public. Right. And then when you're in there and you see mothers crying over their children, trying to get somebody to bring their kids up to visiting and like these, you know, the the, the way people came into this place, like so many of the women that I, that I was in jail with had been molested Some of them couldn't read because the the school system failed, like all these different things. I'm just in here for I'm in here for drugs. But I have my own problems, too, obviously, because I I, I wouldn't be here. But then I got to thinking, like, when I get out of here, I want to try to help. Like I want there's because people don't see what they don't see what's going on in there. Like they don't understand. And the way that the deputies treat you. And, like, having to, you know, spread your ass cheeks and squat and cough and take a two-minute shower and people fighting over lunch trays and stuff like that, that is not rehabilitative Yeah. at all. You can stick a zillion programs in the jail. It's still not rehabilitation. It's, I mean, it's confining people because you didn't know what to do with them because you didn't know how to help them and then throw, on them, throw them in and, so you don't have to look at them.
0: No, definitely. What, what was your relationship like with your mom at this point? Cause I know in the documentary you call her a couple times.
1: So my mom was like my best friend, uh, but at a certain point I didn't have any interaction with her because I said if I'm going to go down, I don't want to pull her down with me. And then at a certain point she tried she sent me money and tried to help me s- and with stuff like that. Money she didn't have actually. She you know she tried to help me, um, and it I mean it did help, but like I really the the best decision I made for my in my life was when I was in the parolee program. And I was like, I don't want you to help me. I don't want you to try to do anything for me. I want to do this 100% for myself because i have always leaning on some other person. Not that I don't want your love and support, but like we have this weird codependent relationship and like I need to just do this by myself because I've never been an adult. I've always been leaning on other people. And like for the first time in my life, I need to step up and try to do something for myself. And I used to go to this women's program and they gave me a lot of support, you know, because the parolee program was just like the tenderloin light. You would go in there and they made bets about the men, made bets who was going to sleep with the women and the women were sleeping together. I mean, it was bad milestones. If, if I don't know if you have any people who've ever been to, on parole, but that's where they sent you. That was yeah. the program that they used to send you to. And there was a, that was just another example of warehousing. I mean, when I graduated there was usually around 80 people on the program at a time, and I think there were seven people that graduated when I went.
0: That's not a good rate right there.
1: No, no. Uh,
0: do you think that, like, like what you said about doing it on your own, I mean, I feel like just in life period, there's a lot of power in, like, taking ownership over your problems or, or your goals or anything Do you think that, I mean, but I do know at the same time, it feels good to be supported and have that support system. But do you think like that kind of ownership of like, this is all on me, I'm going to take the responsibility, you think that is like an important asset to recovery?
1: So there's part of that. But I I mean, when I say do it on my own, there was a whole community that was supporting me. Mm -hmm. So I moved into housing in the Tenderloin from the Salvation Army. So they helped me. There was a job developer that helped me get a job. There was a therapist, a pro bono therapist, that helped me. At one point, I had um, victim services because I was um, I had experienced like severe domestic violence at a certain point, and so they helped me up with a therapist. Like I had this women's group that I used to go to. I used to get a twelve step. So I did do it on my own, but I but it was me being supported by the whole community. I think in particular you know having worked with people coming out of the criminal justice system one of the biggest things is having people that you link into that are positive and have positive things and finding positive things to do because i just remember like the day that i got out of the parole program i was just like sitting in my room in the tenderloin i was like what am i going what am i going to do like i used to go out to the people i used to you know sell drugs with or whatever and like try to chop it up with them and then i was like what am i do what am i doing like, because yeah. in my mind, I'm like, oh, I'm sober now. I can really make money, you know, because uh, and then I look back on that. I'm like, how how does that even sound? But, uh, you know, at the time, I wasn't linked into anything. You know what I mean? I didn't have that sense of community anywhere. So I was just kind of adrift in life.
0: Got it. Yeah, uh, that's interesting. Uh, I, I want to talk more about your recovery uh, later, but I do also want to get back into the documentary. What was the name of the, the director?
1: Steven Okazaki.
0: So is that who approached you at the Neal exchange?
1: Uh, Somebody that worked with him approached me.
0: That's interesting that that's where they went to recruit. Did they have, did they like, Connected with one of the programs or something?
1: So, Horizons Unlimited. Oh, yeah. I went, I went there. <laughs> uh, so, I don't know if you know Donna from Horizons Unlimited. She's been there. I think she's uh, still there.
0: I don't know. I was in the DJ project. That was one of the programs Oh, okay. That's where I first started learning how to do music.
1: Every time I run into her, I'm like, you saved my life. That's what's up. You know, you saved my life. Yeah,
0: dope pro- program. Shout out Horizons Unlimited.
1: Yeah, they have a lot of good programs, Horizons. I went to Larkin Street, too. Did you to yeah. Larkin?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I used to work for At the Crossroads. You know that? Oh, yes. Yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah, remember when Larkin Street used to have—I don't know how old you are, but Larkin didn't only used to go up to 18, and then they started the Tay program. Yeah, 24. That went up to 24. And, like, one of the places they had—Larkin were hospitality houses. Now the little art studio that they had, I think it's on Leavenworth. Mm-hmm. They used to have, like, a basement— And they would let people go in there. If you were under a certain age, you could go in there and sleep. Right. And I used to go in there and sleep because there's no place to use the bathroom in San Francisco. So they would let you go in there and sleep during the day. And then I would go um, to their transitional program in the afternoon and stuff like that. But then I aged out of there.
0: Right, right. But so Horizons was basically connecting the filmmakers with...
1: They just had a youth needle exchange. Oh, it was was a
0: youth needle exchange. It was a youth Mm. needle
1: exchange, like for mostly for... um, It was right where Larkin is. The old Larkin um, was there, and then there was the syringe exchange. Now it's all hipster. Well, I guess they got rid of the hipster bars. Now it's condos. But, you know, um, Polk Street used to be all pickup bars for men. Yeah. So they used to have the giraffe.
0: That was like the men host troll, Yes, the
1: QT. I forgot that when I was mentioning all the different stuff. I mean, there's host trolls everywhere. The whole Tenderloin was a host troll. And then they used to have the host role for men that was there. And they were specifically looking for youth. I mean, that's
0: the filmmakers were.
1: No, that's who the tricks were looking all for. Oh, the tricks.
0: Okay, gotcha. That's gotcha. why they were
1: coming out there. Was yeah. they were looking for underage yeah. kids, really. Right. I mean, that's and then they had the the sort of transgender little area by the mother load, because they had the mother load pickup bar there. So it was just a whole lot of stuff going on there. And I would sleep up there and I would have I would go to that syringe exchange, and I'd have, like, boxes of syringes. So my hustle was selling syringes okay. at, like, 2 o'clock in the morning.
0: So you would get the clean ones from the um, program and then go—
1: And I would exchange them for people, them. but I would yeah. sell them for a buck or two because people would come back, you know, they'd have their tricks with them or whatever— there's no syringe exchange open to 2 o'clock in the morning. Right. So I could make, like, $50 a day, which back there was, a, you know, that's a little grip of money. Yeah. To support, you know, to support my habit. Plus, it was also, I'd give people syringes, too, obviously. But, like, um, I remember one time I charged somebody $5 to shoot up behind my shopping cart. I was always an entrepreneur.
0: Mm-hmm. You kind of have to be in that in that world.
1: Yeah. I mean, I look back on it, it's just like, oh, God. I, I mean, the, the things, but, like, that was my, you know, that was my life. That absolutely was my life, and that's what I was doing, and I was fully invested in it.
0: It's crazy that you had the um, the foresight and just to drive something in you said, "No, I need to share my story with these people." Because I would assume that a lot of people would be like, "Hell no, get get the fuck away from me!" Like I ain't talking to y'all. Like you know what I mean?
1: I didn't let them film everything. I mean, obviously, like because uh, I didn't, I didn't want. I was worried about my family seeing it and stuff like that. I didn't cool. let them. See everything, but like in particular of all the people they filmed. There's one scene where they have me doing laundry, and I was like, "Why was I doing laundry? Because I never did laundry." They're like, "Oh, we gave you money to do laundry because all you ever did was shoot up, and we had to film you doing something else." Damn. And then I was like, "Oh, uh, that kind of hurt."
0: Did 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 you know the other people in in the movie at the time? Or- I did. Uh-huh. I did. did you, all you guys are all kind of just.
1: So Jake. He was one of my friend. He was, like, one of my friend friends. Um, I didn't know Alice and uh, Oreo. I hate... They call him Oreo, but anyway... Oh, that's
0: a fake name just for the movie? Yeah. Oh.
1: Yeah. I knew him from the time he was 16. They just
0: made that up for him?
1: That was his street name. Oh,
0: that was his street name. They didn't use his real name.
1: No, they didn't use his God real name. God. No, his mom... I knew his mom, and I knew him um, when he first started coming. I see him periodically, too, but, like, he's doing good now, but, like, I... Uh, he was like a teenager, and he started coming around. and I was like, "What are you doing?" Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, don't end up like me. I would tell people, "Don't end up like me." But Jake,
0: he but really or- or- was- you grew up in the in the L's, right? That's yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah.
1: His um, his mom was a dispatcher for like nine one one when I and she was actually the front desk person for at the ambassador when I lived there. Mm.
0: Um,
1: so I knew I knew him. I knew Jennifer. She died of a of a crack asthma attack. Mm. In this house, out in the mission, and, like, people didn't call the paramedics fast enough or whatever.
0: That was during the filming of the movie, wasn't it?
1: That was after. It was right after. Right after. Because I knew her. Um, There's actually a tag that he had put uh, Oreo and Jennifer that's still on Leavenworth Street and upward Leavenworth Street and walk by there sometimes and I see it. Wow. That's one of my favorite things to do, actually, is to go look at, like, old, old tags and old, old things that are, like, yeah. still different places in the city. But some of it, so much of it's been torn out.
0: I know. Did you guys develop some type of camaraderie being in that in that film? And did you did you all have kind of similar motivations about sharing your stories?
1: I didn't talk to them about why they were in the film. I, I talked to them at, since then, but I think... At the time when they were doing the film, I was in this relationship that was awful and uh you know, I was just dying on camera and like I was just totally it's weird because people will bring up things that happened in the 90s and I have no no cultural touch touchstones at all yeah. like because I was just using using drugs and stuff like that. Like I don't I don't know um because you can get lost in the Tenderloin like, sure. have have you ever had a friend that went on a bench and they just disappeared? Yes. They're gone three, four, five days a week, a month. Yes. And they just show up 20 pounds thinner and you're like, what happened? You're like, I got lost. They, yeah. Lost
0: sometimes them. it's years later. Yeah. Sometimes I just run into them like, oh, shit, this is where you've been?
1: They just go from hotel to hotel to hotel. People, first, they get in their pockets then they get them hooked on something. They get in another place. And then they get them in their hustles. Yeah. And they just move them from place to place until you don't see them. And they disconnect them from everybody. And then then by that point, everybody's too embarrassed to come back and say, you know, this is what's going on with me because you're just so humiliated. Like, I remember one time I was the rock. You remember when they had the fountain at the Civic Center when the water I was do still there? I remember that, yeah. I was in between the rocks of the Civic Center. And this guy that I knew from Cincinnati was walking by. And he's like, Tracy. I was like, oh, shit. You know, because you don't want to see people you know from your life. You don't want when you're doing that kind of stuff. And he's like, what the fuck are you doing? Know? And I, so he came over and I was like, this is what I'm doing. I was in another alley and I ran into one of my friends. I was doing this, I was sleeping outside in the alley with all my shit. And uh, he was walking by and he was like, bro, what happened to you? Yeah. And uh, he actually did one of the tattoos on my legs since I got sober. He got sober recently too, but like, you know, to know someone from when you're a teenager and have them see you like that, it's just
0: like... Sure, it's it's just a shock for everybody. Did did, did the filmmakers, I've heard a lot of uh, people from other uh, HBO, America Undercover documentaries, they come out later and say they felt exploited or this or that. Um, Did you feel like you got fair treatment from the filmmakers?
1: Um, I was mad that that they didn't put in that I had gotten sober.
0: Oh, they just left that out of the ending.
1: I When the movie came out, I had been sober a year. Oh. And they didn't put it in. And I also, it was it was weird vibes for sure. Like, because I was like, well, why won't you put it in that I'm sober? And then they were like, I said, well, should I get a lawyer? And they're like, well, HBO has really good lawyers. I was like, damn. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know and they do exploit people now it's 10 times worse i mean now they show intervention and stuff like that they might give you three four hundred dollars but they're going to exploit the shit out of you yeah
0: Um, it's a little more manipulated right with like the reality tv that's not really real type of thing yeah
1: they want to get the most sensational shot like when you when you walk around the tenderloin you can easily get pics of people shooting up in their neck and their pants down and all that kind of stuff it's like do you want, really want to capture people with no. that moment in yeah. their life? like? Because I used to tell people, you can take all the pictures you want of me. You don't need to film other people.
0: Yeah, well, even when you have somebody's permission and they're not in the right state of mind, too, that's still a little exploitative, right?
1: Yeah, because yeah. you don't know who's going to see that. Yeah. I mean. Somebody's
0: I, dad is somebody's brother or somebody's sister That's, you know.
1: So when the movie came out, people were stalking me. People called my mother at yeah. her job. There, nowhere in the movie does it say where my last name is. There's a jail wristband that has my last name. That's how weird people are. They found my last name and found my mother and called my mother. It's like, bitch, why are you calling my mother? Yeah. Calling my job.
0: I'm sure that was unexpected.
1: Like, why are you, you know, and, and that I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. I had a guy that came out here. This was maybe like 10 years ago. He saw the movie he had some kind of like fantasy about getting high with me and stuff like that. I'm like, when I found out who he was, I was like, what? Because yeah. he he contacted me like, oh, I want to try to get sober, but it turned out he was some kind of creeper. I was like, what?
0: Were there positive benefits from being in the documentary?
1: No. no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, now there is. Yeah. At the now time, there though. is. Yeah. I just remember uh I mean, there is the the, the the kind of thing that sums up the experience is I was at Popeye's on DeViz. I had to catch a 21 and I had like two pieces and a biscuit. I'm ready to go back to my place in the Tenderloin. And some guy comes sit next to me and he's like rubbing his leg up against my leg. He's like, oh, I know who you are. I was like, I don't know who the fuck, you know what I mean? I'm just trying to get home with my food, you know, my food. I'm trying to get home. And he's like, "Oh, I know who you are." He's like, "You want to get high with me?" And I was like, "Do I want to get high with you?"
0: Yeah, that's creepy.
1: And I was like, "This is not what I would think if you saw someone yeah. <laughs> like that that you want to suddenly get high with." Them. Yeah. Like, and I was, but that was that was quite a few people. But then you know, the Tenderloin is a totally different place. They're you know they're the OGs down there. They're screaming different stuff at me, like, "Hey, baby girl, look at you now." You know, because I'm fat now, uh, walking around the TL, so they can tell. There's been a shift because I've gained 100 pounds or whatever, so they know there's a difference.
0: So, but so by the time you by the time the movie came out, you had gotten clean, Mm -hmm. and that was how long ago now? 24 years,
1: yeah, 1998. I was at Ella Hill Hutch at a NA meeting, and the speaker brought it up the week they came out, and I was like, That was me, wow. And uh, but at first it was nice, you know, then it was kind of like Maybe not so nice. I, I've gone through periods of time where I'm like, eh, I don't know if I want to be associated with. But now it's so old. Uh, and people are always like, oh, have your kids seen? I'm like, my youngest is 11 years old. Why would I show him that?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, Does he well, have any idea that you were in so, some type of documentary? My
1: or? kids know I was in a movie. They know I wrote a book. I Since my kids have been little, little, I've taken when we're on the bar to stuff like that. I'm like, give your snacks to the unhoused person. Go give him your snacks. It's like, well, that's my snack. No, no, no. Give him your... They need it more than you. I've taken my kids on, like, outreach with homeless people. Give them the pie. This guy's shooting up. I don't care. Put the pie by his feet. Yeah. You know, do things for other people. Like, this is this is where you live. Like, try to give people a perspective of uh, what it's really like for other people. Because they don't... They never know. when. when um, actually, when Romeo had his art show, and then there was another art show at our Primo, I took separately my son's up there and i showed him i was like this is where i used to sleep outside mm. and they were like well it's cold outside i'm like yeah it it was cold out it was cold outside but that's you know, they're so sick of hearing about me going to jail and using drugs they're like
0: yeah yeah." they're like we know them, right?
1: they're like because they just don't i mean because they've never known that person they don't yeah, know who yeah. that is but i think that's the only way i'm going to keep them off drugs for sure if it's, you know, when you grow up and everybody's hiding stuff from you, like people used to try to like my mom used to try to hide at first how bad my dad's drinking was. It's like all it does is mess the kids up because they know something's wrong.
0: Yeah. Like I said, my pops like sat me down and forced me to watch the Black Tar One documentary. And that definitely had a positive effect. It was wild for me to see at that age, but um, I'm actually glad he did that and uh, had the foresight to be. To even like address that so early with me, because I know so many people that 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 didn't get that kind of reality check. Um, when you got clean, that's got to be like a big shift. Like it's it's not just like using; it's like your whole lifestyle that you had to change. It's, did you like go right into like a nine to five life, or what was it, what was it like when you first got clean?
1: So when I got out of jail. I went into rehab and then I got out of rehab and I moved straight to the Tenderloin. So I lived at 242 Turk at this old Salvation Army building. So I was right in the thick of it. Which I love the Tenderloin. Tenderloin back then had a lot of good places to eat. Like people don't bother me. Like I've yeah. lived a lot of different places in the city and like I don't have any problems getting along with anybody because I don't bother them. They don't bother me. I don't have a lot of money. I don't flap you know it's like I don't we don't have any problems. And like so I'm in the Tenderloin and it was, it was like being transported to another world. Cause I'm not, I don't have that mask anymore. I don't have that hardness that I had had before that chemicals provide you with. That's sort of like, uh, you know how when you first drink a beer and it takes the edge off, like when you're about to do something yeah. or go someplace, you're nervous or like whatever, like I didn't have that edge taken off. It was like everything was like your raw dogging reality. You're mm-hmm. just totally there, and I didn't know who I I didn't know who I was. Like I try, I went through all kinds of different phases, um, dressing and um, just you know stereotypes and like th- things. I didn't know what I didn't know who I was. It took years for me to sort out who I was as a person because all your sort of like years where you try to figure out who you were. Um, I was just dope fiend. Um, so I had to figure that out and it was, it was challenging. And plus I'm fat, you know, plus all of a sudden now I've gained all this weight physically. I don't look like I used to look, I had 34 abscesses. I had hep C, I had, you know, chipped teeth and I had to get all the teeth fixed. I had to get all these, like, I'm not even the same person. Um, my health was not, you know, good. I had to get my health together and stuff like that. I got rid of the Hep C, and. uh you know my, all my relationships had been terrible with any any person I picked male or female that I dated was like problems so I had to I had to sit myself on the shelf for a long time and just like be by myself like I just I'm cool I can't be with anybody I just need to be by myself
0: and am I um, recalling this correctly I know that um uh, unfortunately from the documentary Jake passed away um did everybody else end up getting sober?
1: So, Alice and—I uh, mean, they're—yeah, Alice is sober, sober, and Oreo, with air quotes, he's—he does—he's not on drugs. I mean, everybody has their own continuum. Like, I don't even use the word clean anymore. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm not using drugs, and I don't drink. I, I mean, I would smoke weed, except for it makes me paranoid.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so, But I take those, like, CBD things, you know what I mean? Like, I— I, everybody it's like a continuum like some people are like a hundred percent I can't do anything ever like I'm not trying I, if if I could I would but when I drink I try to stab my friends or I'm crying it's like not it just doesn't work for me if there was any other possibility I would probably do it but I personally I just can't yeah. and then the rest of the people I haven't seen you know or they're dead so but um but you know for for young people or older people that are listening like, you have to do you and you have to do what works for you. And like, you don't have to put a label on it, but if something, if you're using a substance or you're drinking something, try cutting back first. Mm-hmm. All you gotta do is try to cut back first. You don't have to, because you, when you take away drugs, you have to replace it with something because it's playing a, a role in your life. And you can't just tell people you're just gonna take that away. You have to have something positive to put in there. And for some people, it's a shift. It takes a little while. And once you start cutting back and stuff like that, then you, then the lights start to go on. Like, oh, maybe I need to, to give this a break. I mean, and alcohol is the worst, really.
0: Yeah, uh, alcohol is a motherfucker, um, <clears throat> especially when it's that like addiction phase and jaundice and all that type. People of getting stuff.
1: the DTS. Yeah. Like I had a co-worker one day. He's he's drinking Sparks before work. Yeah. Actually, I was a supervisor, and you're drinking Sparks, and he's like, "Oh, it's an energy drink." I'm like, "Yeah, it's eight o'clock.
0: <laughs> it's eight <laughs> right. o'clock
1: in the morning." You went to the donut shop, hit the be- <laughs> you know, hit the beer and came back and you don't see, you don't see it. You yeah. know what I mean? Like people don't, and, and alcohol, the way it changes your, be- it changes your behavior. Like you can just see like shh, that. And to be truthful, alcohol, people being around people drinking a lot of times makes me afraid just because of the way my dad used to be. Cause he, you know, he was a hard, he was a hard man and, um he would switch, you know what I mean? And when he would get angry and stuff like that, I was like, I don't, it makes me feel kind of unsafe. So I don't really like to, I don't like to hang out in bars and stuff like that. It's not because there's anything wrong with that. It's just not for me.
0: What What led you into working in the recovery field and working with nonprofits?
1: So I don't really work in the recovery field anymore. I work in peer-based mental health services. But I think for me, I thought I wanted to try to give back, but also I needed a paycheck. And with a felony, it's hard to get a job. Mm-hmm. So I'm a convicted felon. I've never had my record expunged, um, and at first it was really hard to get a job. And so they, as I started working as a peer counselor, and I just kind of worked my way. Excuse me. I did work in recovery for a while, but I think so many of the substance use programs just don't meet people's needs anymore. I think. Um, because a lot of young people, they don't want to be a hundred percent sober. They right. want they, you know, they just don't want to. They wanna use they want to use cannabis to get off heroin or get off coke or get off fentanyl. They don't want to be a hundred percent sober and there's not really a lot of places for them. And so I try to do advocate for all types of recovery and do, you know, and try to do what works for people. And also there's a lot of discrimination in the recovery field. I think white absence white people are geared toward abstinence-based treatment, especially AA is really built around sort of a, a paradigm that really excludes people of color in a lot of ways.
0: Interesting.
1: So I just, um, I just try to advocate for people wherever they're at in the whole, because I mean, people were generous to me in their spaces. I'm in the jails, they're helping me and stuff like that. And I feel like there's a lot of the community that I want to try to help, not help in like a, I I'm I know everything. It's like help in like a, a way where you are, um, interested in what other people, how you can assist people to be the best they are because the solutions are inside of you. It's not me giving anything to you. It's me holding a mirror up to you so you can see yourself and how you can help yourself. It's not, I don't need to give anything to you because you know, I, I'm just, the only thing I'm, I'm doing is trying to, to bear witness to what's already going on with you.
0: Yeah. Uh, has that helped in maintaining your own recovery? Cause even though it's been like decades, I'm sure like, I give a lot of respect to to you and other uh, recovering addicts because I know it's, like, constant work. Does, like, helping other people through the process help you as well?
1: I don't know about any more because everybody's died from, you know, because being involved spe- specifically with giving out Narcan and overdoses and stuff, I've had a lot of people in my life die. First they died of AIDS, and then they died of overdoses, so it's it's been hard to watch people, especially young people, die under thirties die. I call them generation overdose because you know there's been a million people lost to overdose since the late nineties, and especially in the past few years, people taking a pill and it's got fentanyl in it and they die and coke and the you know people the, the lady from the beauty bar. You have people in the mission like people going out and partying and not knowing about fentanyl and then they and then they overdose and die. So like I really. Have tried to switch gears because I can't really necessarily help anyone get sober. I can try to give them my experience, but really talking to people using whatever platform I have to try to educate people about overdose, I probably wouldn't even be doing any of these kind of stuff anymore if it wasn't for the fact that I hope if one person learns about overdose prevention from doing this kind of thing, then it's worth it. If one person, um, you know, Narcan gets knocked with Narcan and Naloxone or gets interested in overdose prevention, then it's worth it because um, I'm not the star of any show. You know, I'm just a, I'm just a person who's trying to um, to get along with, I mean, I'm just like a soccer mom now.
0: That's cool. Uh, and you brought some Narcan with us today. Um, you're a big advocate for this. Um, how does it work? Uh, and where can people get it if they need it?
1: So that, I mean, Naloxone is the cheaper version. And that's like, I get those free, From the state so if you go to 1380 howard uh at the pharmacy at cbhs pharmacy they give out uh, narcan there's also a a, a narcan naloxone locator like naloxone is the injectable form and then narcan the only reason why um i've had narcan around so much is because a lot of people don't want to use syringes so the people who know how to get overdose medications a lot of time get naloxone and then even like trying to educate people when you look at um, getting like people who do graffiti and stuff like that Narcan has better letters than Naloxone <laughs> so i thought people put up
0: yeah you've <laughs> done like um, graffiti campaigns for Narcan
1: before, not for Narcan fuckadap pharma the company but for the for the Nar, you know for the medic for the idea of overdose prevention yeah. I think for some people who don't necessarily are around needles it's their Narcan is a little easier more digestible for them yeah um but I mean, it's if a person is having an accidental overdose, you you put it in their nose, or if it's the injectable point, you put it in their muscle, and then um, hopefully they start breathing after that. So, uh, but it's it has simple instructions in it. I mean, the the big thing now, you know, I have a 15 year old, and I think about is she going to accidentally be at some party and take some pill. Um, and it's going to have fentanyl in it because that just there was what a 12 year old in San Jose and it was the pill was given to, that died it was given to them by a 16 year old now he's going to face what life in prison or something like that like one, a, a son of someone I know he's in prison for 20 years for giving someone um, a drug that ended up having fentanyl in it the person uh, fake fake uh, perks and end up he's and he's going to, he's in prison now he's going to be in prison for 20 something more years. So it's a lot, you know, there's a lot going on with that. And it and it's so in the next generation, I've been trying to push these schools. Like, why don't you teach them about Narcan? Why don't you educate them? And they're doing it a little bit. It's slowly starting to happen. Um, and so, you know, but we were trying to get Narcan or the idea of Narcan into popular, especially with graffiti artists, you know, five, six years ago by having them put up Narcan.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's real shit. I mean, i I have a. I'd be here all night if I named everybody I know who's overdosed, and I, I do know people who've overdosed off of shit that was cut with fentanyl, and it's not a joke anymore. You might think you're just fucking around with that. Oh, I'll do it every now and then, and a one line here, one line there. But if if you got that bad batch, like you're, you're you could be out the game.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, absolutely, and I think so much of popular culture talks about. You know, just take a perk or whatever. Um, it's so funny because even when I think about like they're not perks anymore. They're yeah, not they're no. not inboxes anymore. They're it's fentanyl pills. That's yeah. that's what they are for the most part. I mean, when we were kids, we would get the cough syrup and even when I was a kid, but you know, now it's like it's advanced to a whole nother level where you just screwing around one time with the Xanax bar and it's not actually a Xanax bar. And then you're dead because what are your friends going to do?
0: Yeah, they don't have any—they don't know the resources or they don't have access to the Narcan or anything.
1: Or they're just afraid. Yeah. They're just afraid, you know, so.
0: Um, How did your book come about?
1: Oh, so I used to write ho stories and drug stories um, that—on the internet. And some people got a hold of them and sent them to an agent, and then I ended up selling a book. I mean, that's a short story— like we were talking earlier about on various points, I've had big platforms. And like at one point I had a pretty big writing platform and I would just write crazy stories, um, true stories. I mean, this thing is my stories are true. Like I don't have to make anything up because if you if you stay in the tenderloin for more than a month, you get this. I mean, every single day, like every day you see something crazy. And so a lot of different things happened to me. Um, it all started with me writing a story about uh, when I had a 70 year old sugar daddy when I was 21 and like, just kind of went from there. Um, and like, I make fun of myself, you know, I have a sense of humor about all the different things that happen to me, but I like to write in detail. So one of the things I like about sort of like the intersection of graffiti and people who, and rap music and writing is the stories, the building of the stories Definitely. and the little visual details like, um, you know, when you think about like the line, this um the sweat inside my hand, like you can see, you know what I mean? Like you can see it. Like I like to write I'd like to try to write stories where you can see the visual details. And I think there's something about being out at night when it's cold, you know, it's cold and it's damp and you all you're experiencing all these things with different senses and stuff like that. I tried to capture a lot of that and people got into it. People liked that kind of writing. And so they sent it. To the agent, but the book I ended up selling, they wanted it toned down. <laughs> they didn't, they didn't want something. I wrote the book, and I certainly cashed that check, but they wanted a lot of it kind of toned down because they didn't know if they could sell it to um, you know sort of middle America. So I still have stories that I tell and stuff like that. Um, I'm going to sell another. I'm going to like work on it, but you know, actually, I was selling stories like mixtapes. <laughs> I sold like four thousand dollars worth of stories. I wrote them out and I said you can pay whatever you want for them. That's how I really how I ended up getting a book because people were like, oh shit, I'll buy that. Um, and I only had like one person say that, you know, no, this is, you know, I'm sorry that I read, you know, it's like mostly and it wasn't really edited and it was, you know, it was just kind of like stories and half some of them were kind of half written and stuff like that. But um, that's what if you like to write, write. People are always like, what's the best way to do something? Just do it. Yeah. Like that's, if you want to write, if you want to make music, if you want to do something like that, you just do it. The only reason we're alive for a certain extent is to have some kind of creativity in our lives. I mean, that's, drugs really destroy creativity. That's one of the worst, that's one of the worst parts of it. Right. Is that it takes that away. And like, even now I haven't been able to write anything for a little while because I spent too much time scrolling my phone and, I was worried about getting on psych meds, you know, for being anxious and stuff like that. And it's like, I haven't been able to write, but this actually kind of, think knowing I was coming here kind of inspired me because I like pulled out a lot of songs I hadn't heard in a long time. And I was listening to, and like, when you feel like, when you can put yourself in a place where then you can then have a creative vision and like see it all the way through and how I want this to go. Um, so it's kind of like inspired me a little bit.
0: That's awesome. I'm, I feel inspired right now. And you're big on TikTok too. Uh, your TikTok is fucking hilarious. You're like, one day I was at the trap house, and then da, da 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 And it seems like they're like popular on, like people are responding to them.
1: They actually, I they are kind of popular, which is kind of it's kind of strange. Like I just, uh, I try to, like I said, I try to capture the essence of what the story is, because like the one t- one TikTok I think you're talking about is. Nate, tell talk about a time when someone was talking in another language and you understood them. And I said, I was tweaking in the trap house when somebody, I heard over the police scanner, one out of 12, and then I knew to get the fuck out of there because they said, one out of 12, there's a 211 in progress, which 211 is a robbery. And I was tweaking it. Well, I used the term trap house. We didn't use the term trap house back then, dope house. But like, um, San Francisco used to have all those houses. Yes. So, they, I mean, San Francisco was so wild compared to like how it is now like even now it's concentrated a little area but like there used to be empty houses in the hay and people would have raves in their house and like i saw i was across i was eating food on hate street there's a double murder across the street at two jacks i was sitting there eating i mean like stuff like that was all you go to the mission there'd be shootings and stabbings like all 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 the time like now it's kind of tame compared
0: to how it used to be. Yeah, I, I, I said this recently on TikTok myself that uh, the whole crime is out of control narrative in San Francisco is bullshit. If anything, there's more cameras and people are recording more of the stuff. But um, what's going And there's some crazy shit that still happens, but. Compared to to what I grew up in, hell no, nah, this is this is way different.
1: Like I was watching the video of this people having the sideshow on the bridge. Yeah. And I was sitting there thinking, that's kind of tame though. When you yeah. think about how things used to yeah, used yeah. to be, but like, you know, why are people having a sideshow on the bridge? Because they don't have anything to fucking do.
0: And it's almost in these days, it's something to go. Let's go do a sideshow on the bridge and film it and put it on Instagram.
1: Yeah, and people didn't cover their license plates. That's a whole nother set yeah, of things. Yeah. You gotta, if you're gonna be doing all that, you gotta think your way. You gotta, yeah,
0: you gotta be smart.
1: But uh, but I mean, think about it. How long do you think they were probably actually on the bridge? Ten minutes?
0: I don't know. Yeah. Well, it not that. Couldn't have been that long.
1: I mean, you saw how many cars. Three cars do a couple spins. Yeah. All those people converge. You set the whole thing up. How long could it really have been yeah, on the bridge?
0: Yeah, Tracy's gangster. She's like that. That wasn't shit. <laughs> Back in my day, we ran Frisco streets.
1: I'm not saying it was shit. I'm not saying it was shit. I'm old now. I'm just saying, if you're going if you're going to invest in all that, because people are, like, when they have those art shows and people tag up the buses and stuff like that, you don't yeah. see that much of that anymore.
0: No,
1: no. no. I mean, you see the whole train, the whole bus, the whole yeah. thing, because people don't have, they don't have much to believe in. They don't have much to do. They need stuff to do. I mean, part of, like, graffiti and art comes out of people being bored. yeah. They need something, and And after the earthquake, all of downtown, all of Market Street was just, half of it was empty. You had that, the Strand Theater was a porno theater. Yeah. Uh, Then they had the three strip clubs. Crazy Horse. And then, yeah. uh, The one where they had the Double and the Bubble. What was that? The Regal? or Uh, The the
0: Market Street Cinema. Market
1: Street Cinema. Then they had, remember when they had Fascination, they had the gambling game?
0: Yeah, like the pool hall type of spot, right?
1: Yes. And then they had... uh, was it the hotline where you would go in the back of the different places and they would gamble on the vending on the little video machines? I
0: don't remember that.
1: Yeah, they had a lot of stuff.
0: That shit was sick. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, like I said, you're my you're one of my heroes. I'm really happy to be here. You inspire me so much. I hope that people uh, are inspired by this. I hope people go back and watch the documentary, and I hope people go check out your book. Before I let you go, um, what is one thing that you would say to someone who is struggling with addiction and wants to look into recovery and make some changes? What's one piece of advice you would give them?
1: Oh, I would. uh, That's a lot. So I would say if people are listening and they really have questions, you can you can contact me. That's why I'm transparent. Like, I can't solve your problems. I might be able to point you in the right direction. But I would say. Always try cut back first. Look at what your who your support systems are. I mean, alcohol is really hard because you can die. Benz is really hard because you can die trying to quit. But like, really look at what your support systems are. I mean, there's a lot of people that would be willing to help you if they knew if they knew how to support you and how to help. But San Francisco and the Bay Area in general has a lot of different types of supports. I would say carry Narcan, no matter what, no matter what drug you're fucking with, you should carry. Narcan, if you have friends—I mean, really, everybody should have Narcan naloxone. They should have it somewhere around. I mean, I see overdoses just walking around the city sometimes. Out Even by my house, I've seen overdose—well, it's not—I mean, just really trying to um, tap into whatever support system you have. But there's—I wouldn't be—I wouldn't be afraid. I could say my life has improved, you know, a zillion, billion times since I stopped. I mean, I do miss the hustle sometimes. I mean, I I can glamorize it, but, I mean— Really, I don't. I don't. I don't miss what the life was like. Like yeah. I'm good. I'm, it's like
0: I'm, a nostalgia type of thing. Right?
1: Yeah, I'm gonna go home and take a hot shower, which I never had. I'm gonna be in my house that I own, which I never would have had. I mean, I was sleeping slept behind a shopping cart. Um, I have my three kids who love me. I'm been. I'm been in a healthy relationship. You know, it's like I'm good. I'm. I'm. I'm a hundred percent. Hundred percent good.
0: That's fucking awesome. Shout out to you, Tracy. Thank you so much for being here. Um, appreciate everybody for tuning in uh, maybe I'll have you back one day and we'll tell some more stories and stuff and we didn't even talk about graffiti or anything like that either but you know maybe another time okay. <laughs> alright y'all uh, we'll be back soon thank you for tuning in peace